welcome to the Build a Life After Loss podcast, uplifting support for your grief and healing journey. We're here to encourage your hope in the future and strengthen your confidence so that you can build a life of purpose and joy. I'm your host, Julie Clough, Certified Grief Coach. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 91, Miracles in the Darkness, Building a Life After Loss. This is a special edition of the podcast. You may have noticed that Wednesday the podcast didn't come out like it does normally, and I wanted to give you some explanation on that. I moved recently, but that's not the biggest reason. I got really sick over the last two, three weeks, and I ran out of episodes that I had prepared, and so I just wasn't feeling up to recording a podcast. So I apologize for not showing up. I know so many of you show up on Wednesday to hear the latest episode. So again, I apologize for not being here and I, I hope you'll forgive me. This is a special edition. This is, I'm actually leaving for a short family vacation today. And so I'm recording this now. This will be the podcast kind of making up for the Wednesday podcast that I missed. And I won't be here this coming Wednesday because again, I've been sick and I moved and there was a lot of things happening. Mostly it was the sickness that caused me not to get that podcast out to you this past Wednesday, but I will not be back in time to record a podcast for this coming Wednesday. So, so starting the, the following Wednesday, we will have regular Wednesday episodes again. And again, I apologize. It has been a weird past three weeks. I can't even tell you how strange. And it, you know, I haven't been sick and I don't, I can't even remember the last time I was sick. And I have my coaching clients that I work with and I actually missed, uh, one or two appointments. Some of my clients, I missed two appointments because of the way their appointments fell and in the time that I was sick and, I just felt horrible about that. So there was, there's never been another time when I had to miss because I was sick. So I, I felt really bad about that, but I am back and I'm ready to go. And my book is out. It still shows pre-order on Amazon, but the publisher is starting to ship the books. So you, if you order now, if you haven't already, you should get your book pretty quickly. We do have our July workshop was moved. It was originally planned for this past Thursday night, which was the July 9th, and it's been moved to July 23rd because, again, I was sick and I just couldn't pull that off. So we will be doing that on July 23rd. So I'm looking forward to meeting with all of you then. And that's a virtual workshop. It's it's live video. I send you the recording afterwards and so forth. So that is happening on July 23rd. So there's still time to register if you haven't registered for that yet. Okay, so my special gift to you today is I am going to share with you the first chapter of my book, Miracles in the Darkness. I got my copy from the publisher this past week, and I, it was, I I can't even express to you. People have been sending pictures that they got their copies, and they've sent me messages that they got their book, and they sat down to read a chapter or two and ended up reading the whole book that day. So that just makes me so happy. I know when I've gone through hard things, when I went through a divorce, I read books from people who had experienced divorce. And and after my kids died, the same thing. I have always loved 
to hear other people's stories. It always has meant so much to me to hear how other people have navigated the difficult things in their life. I, I just, I love nonfiction books in general. I love knowledge. I love information. And so it just made sense that it just made sense for me because I've, I've benefited so much from other people's experiences. It made sense for me to, to also write a book and tell my story. And my book is interesting because I've had a lot of different losses and I intersperse some different lessons or different, I don't know if lessons the right word, but the things that I learned from past experiences that I brought to to the, the grief that I experienced with the death of my children. And I hope, I, I hope you realize that the book is, is meant to be uplifting. I know it's a kind of a hard story, but it really is meant to be uplifting. It's meant to show how we are, how we are supported through our darkest days. So anyway, without further ado, let me read you the first chapter of Miracles in the Darkness. My birthday landed on the day before Mother's Day in 2007. I decided we would celebrate in a couple weeks when I returned from a planned trip. Every day with our six children was filled with activity and there was no time for a celebration that busy Saturday. Our oldest daughter, 20-year-old Stephanie, was away from home, a college sophomore in Idaho, but everyone else's activities kept us hopping all day. Our 10-year-old daughter, Carrie, spent the day performing in a homeschool Shakespeare play, with her older brothers while I attended a mandatory Cub Scout leader meeting for an upcoming day camp for eight-year-old David. I went to my meeting reluctantly, resenting having to miss the final play performance. I had seen it earlier in the week, and I was grateful for that. That same Saturday, our 18-year-old daughter Kristen frantically prepared to go to her senior prom that night. She had designed and sewn her own dress, but the fabric turned out to be faulty and was literally coming apart at the seams. No dress, no prom. Preparing for the prom became an unexpectedly huge ordeal. In between other demands, I hurriedly helped Kristen with her with a solution to the dress fiasco. We made frantic phone calls to friends in hopes of finding an alternative gown for her to wear. Just in time, she found something suitable. Kristen made temporary repairs to the dress she had created and chose to wear that for pictures, but knowing it wouldn't hold up on the dance floor, she brought the borrowed dress to change into as soon as the pictures were over. She dressed and finished her preparations moments before her boyfriend, Joel, picked her up for the evening. I followed Kristen and Joel to their friend's house to take pictures of them and their prom group before they all left for dinner. While Kristen was at the prom, my husband Ron and I attended a parent appreciation dinner hosted by the teens of our homeschool group. Carrie was only 10 and officially not a teen, but she was invited to attend with her older brothers, James, who was 12, and Dallin, 15. She was thrilled. Carrie served us all night long. She was constantly asking if we needed something else. She brought us water. She brought us rolls. She loved feeling so grown up and included, and it was her nature to be so service-minded and loving. She was in her element. Still too young and immature for the dinner event, our eight-year-old son, David, spent the evening with a friend who lived in the neighborhood just a few streets away. Even though his friend lived close by, it was the first time David had been allowed to ride his bike to his friend's house on his own. 
Energetic David was very adventurous, so it was all we could do to keep him contained and safe, but the day had finally come for a little more freedom. David had looked forward to this day when he could explore further from home. After a long and demanding day, Ron kept the kids up, watching the movie Forever Strong, while I quickly packed so I could go to bed as early as possible. I wanted plenty of rest before our long road trip. Early the next morning, James, Carrie, David, and I planned to drive from our home just north of Houston to Ron's parents' home in Murphy, North Carolina, on the western tip of the state a couple of hours north of Atlanta, Georgia. With our large family and our extended family so far away, we were used to piling in the car and driving across country. We had made this trek many times before. I went to bed irritated that Ron was keeping the little kids up late. I wanted them to get their sleep so I wouldn't have to deal with tired, grumpy kids the next day, but they stayed up and I went to bed. David snuggled on one side of his dad and Carrie on the other as they watched the movie. I know now that this was just how it was meant to be, and I regret my irritation. They were meant to have that very special time with their dad before they were gone. At 5 a.m. the next morning, Mother's Day, we gathered on the long driveway of our spring Texas home. Ron helped me pack our luggage into the back of our GMC Yukon, an SUV that was a necessity for our family. Ron had a knack for making everything fit. After he worked his magic, we were loaded to go. Our three youngest children and I were squeezing in a trip to their grandparents' country home. They lived on five acres in the hills of southwest North Carolina, and the land was a kid's paradise. Lots of room to roam among the trees, a fire pit behind the house for roasting hot dogs and marshmallows, a creek beyond the fire pit at the bottom of the property, and a tractor rides provided by their grandpa. It's as close as you can get to camping and still sleep in a warm bed. Our son James loaded up his heavy backpack into the front seat. He carried that heavy backpack full of books and other treasures everywhere he went. I'm not sure he ever read any of the books he had in his bag, but he always had it with him. Carrie and David climbed into the back seat with a couple dozen toys and activities to keep them busy on the long day's drive. I threw in cheese crackers, raisins, and other snacks in an effort to keep them happy so I could focus on my job, which was driving. Ron gave us each a hug and a kiss. As he hugged me goodbye, he added his usual reminder, be safe and remember you have precious cargo. As we drove, Carrie and David happily played together in the back seat, entertaining themselves with their toys as we traveled through East Texas, Louisiana, and into Mississippi. As we entered Mississippi on Interstate 10, I had to admit the trip was going great. I was surprised and thrilled that the grumpy outbursts from tired kids had not materialized. In the early afternoon, we stopped for lunch at Taco Bell. I was feeling generous because of their good behavior, and I encouraged the kids to order whatever they wanted from the menu, an unexpected treat from a thrifty mom who was typically worried about getting every penny out of every dollar. After our lunch break, we jumped back into the Yukon to continue our journey east. Traveling on Interstate 20, I teased James, who was sitting next to me in the front seat. I pulled the SUV slowly to the right and ran over the rumble strips on the side of the highway. We giggled at the funny noises the tires made against the uneven pavement. As we drove, we listened to music. It was Sunday, and we normally would have been at church, so I brought some inspirational music to enjoy. 
I particularly remember listening to the CD Joseph by the Nashville Tribute Band, music dedicated to the life and mission of Joseph Smith Jr. The song that caught my interest was Emma, a song dedicated to Emma Smith, Joseph's wife. I could feel Emma's pain as I listened to the haunting verse that foreshadowed my own pain. Quote, when you buried your children, I'm sure the angels stood in reverence as you prayed. How much can one heart take? How much can one heart take? Close quote. I reflected on the unimaginable pain of losing a child. Eventually, the peace in the backseat deteriorated. Carrie got frustrated with David pestering her. I looked behind me to remind David for at least the third time to put his seatbelt back on. These were the days before it was well known that car seats were safer beyond preschool, so everyone was just strapped into their individual seatbelts. As I looked back over my right shoulder, I watched Carrie slide from the middle seat next to David to the seat behind me next to the door. As she latched her seatbelt, she said, I love you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Everyone settled in for the last of our drive, and I thought I would make it before dark. Sometime later, as we neared the Mississippi-Alabama border, I woke up to our SUV bumping along in the grassy medium between the eastbound lanes and the westbound lanes of highway. I had never even felt sleepy. In shock, I tried to bring the SUV back up onto the road. When I did, our vehicle started to roll. It rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. Impossible to count how many times. I remember hearing a voice as we rolled. Bring your arm in, the voice urged. Somehow somehow I had the sense to obey, and I pulled my left arm closer to my body. We rolled across the eastbound highway until we finally came to a stop, upright on our wheels, facing the highway on the grassy right shoulder of the eastbound lane. When we landed, I couldn't see anything. It was midday, but everything was dark. I had temporarily lost my eyesight when I hit my head as we tumbled. Even though I couldn't see anything, I instinctively and immediately knew that our lives had changed forever. I heard James crying in distress next to me. His cries frightened me since I couldn't determine how injured he was. At the same time, I was grateful for those cries because at least I knew he was alive. I frantically called out for Carrie and David, but there was no response. Carrie, David, Carrie, David, are you all right? Carrie, David, silence. Slowly, my eyesight started to return. I sat in the front seat, physically stunned and paralyzed with fear. As I looked at the devastation of our vehicle, the shattered glass, the mangled mess of the vehicle, our strewn belongings, and the terrible silence from the back seat, I screamed in agony. I killed my kids. I killed my kids. I killed my kids. The memory of those anguished screams haunt me today as I reflect on my suffering 12-year-old son crying next to me and witnessing such a horrifying scene. I couldn't find my cell phone, but I was desperate to call Ron. I noticed people gathering in the field, yards away from where we came to a stop. The realization punched me hard that Carrie and David were in the grass, thrown from the vehicle during the violent rolling. A man approached the car. I need a phone. I need to call my husband, I cried. He handed me his cell phone, and I dialed Ron with panic and dread. Ron, I've been in an accident. 
Carrie and David had been thrown from the car. I blurted out between sobs. My voice dropped as I continued, I don't know if they're going to make it. I could feel his anguish across the connection. I could sense his shock with his stunned response. Okay, it will be okay. It will be okay, he said to soothe me. But I could hear the veer in his voice. Where are you? He asked. I had a sense that Carrie and David were either both going to survive or they were going to die together. As siblings, they had an unusually close bond, and I couldn't imagine one without the other. The sweet man who loaned me his phone stayed with me, talking softly and slowly, trying to calm me down. He said that his wife and others were with Carrie and David and that they were okay, and that his wife was singing to Carrie to comfort her. I could see people in the distance standing over my children, using blankets to shield them from the intense afternoon sun. When I look back on this scene, I remember so many people in that field with Carrie and David, but I don't remember many cars parked on the side of the highway. I wonder if I was witnessing heavenly angels as well as earthly angels in that grass along the interstate. Regardless of what I saw, I have no doubt that many angels were present. Emergency vehicles started to arrive. Carrie and David seemed miles away, and I could barely make out the scene as the paramedics loaded David onto a stretcher, his small arm slipping from under the sheet and dangling off the side as they carried him to the ambulance. Another paramedic crew cautiously took James and then me out of the car and placed us on striker boards to keep us stabilized while we were transported to the hospital. James and I were taken to Resch Hospital in Meridian, Mississippi. Someone, I don't remember who, told me that Carrie and David were rushed to a hospital in York, Alabama. We were that close to the state border. I didn't understand why they were taken to a different hospital, but I didn't ask. To this day, I assume it is because they were both small country hospitals ill-equipped for multiple emergency cases on a holiday afternoon, but I'm not sure. In the ambulance, I asked repeatedly if Carrie and David were okay, but no one responded. Once at the hospital and in tremendous physical and emotional pain, I laid on the striker board, vacillating between quiet tears and an unearthly peace as I imagined the Savior there carrying my burdens. A few weeks before the accident, a friend had walked me through a Christ-centered visualization. She guided me through while asking questions. If you were to imagine a peaceful place where you could meet the Savior, where would it be? She asked. I described a spring meadow filled with foot-high grass and colorful wildflowers surrounded on all sides in the distance by rocky mountains with delicate snowcaps. I could see, smell, and hear the meadow as if I were there, even though my experience had been mostly along the white sandy beaches of Florida where I grew up. As I stood in the meadow, Jesus Christ approached me, accepted my burdens, and offered me indescribable love and compassion. In return, I offered him a boxed gift. When my friend asked what was in the box, I said, music, a very unequal exchange. As Luke reminds us in Luke 17.10, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. What the Lord offers us will always outweigh what we have to offer Him. I had never experienced a meditative visualization like that before, and the power of the experience surprised me. Little did I know that I would so desperately need the peace of that vision just a few short weeks later. 
James was being attended to in another room nearby. Still, no one would tell me anything about Carrie and David's condition. An emergency room nurse did tell me that my Aunt Ava and her husband David, who lived in Richton, Mississippi, just an hour and a half from Meridian, were on their way to the hospital. I gratefully anticipated friendly family faces. In the meantime, I had a visit from a highway patrolman asking questions about where we were traveling from and to, who was in the car, what happened, etc. I answered as best as I could in my distracted and pained state. Someone had contacted a local bishop, the congregation leaders of our church, to visit me in the hospital until my family could arrive. He sat by my cot, clearly uncomfortable, as he tried to say something to reassure a stranger. He talked about the eternal nature of life and that regardless of what happened to Carrie and David, they would always be mine. I knew all that, but I didn't have the strength to respond. The pain was too great, and it was too soon to talk about eternal life. I can't imagine the courage it took him to show up at the hospital. My Aunt Eva and Uncle David finally arrived. Ron was at the Houston airport trying to get a flight to Mississippi as quickly as possible, and my aunt put him on the phone to talk to me. I hadn't talked to Ron since the first phone call. Julie, he paused. Carrie and David didn't make it, he whispered. The conversation ended. We were both crying, and we hung up, knowing that life would never be the same. That's the first chapter of Miracles in the Darkness. I hope you enjoyed that reading. I I want you to know that even as painful as that experience is, even as painful as what happened is, that again, I just tell you that the book is about rebuilding and rediscovering life and understanding that life is full of challenges and that we can expect challenges, but we can also expect happiness. We can also expect the love of God to support us in our hard days. On the back cover are a couple of quotes from the book. I want to share with you the longer version of those quick quotes that are shared in the back of the book. This is from page 153. Happiness is as present and elusive as air. I believe that it's in the process of becoming who we were always meant to be that we discover our happiness if we are paying attention and we know what to look for. I also believe that a powerful hope that healing is always available to us is critical to being happy. And the other half of that quote starts out with life is a miracle life is a miracle i want to always remember that and honor it for the miracle that it is i hope you have a fabulous week i can't wait to be back with you again regularly on wednesdays talk to you soon bye